Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, hi, and welcome. I am your host, Emigrant Awardner. And in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people. Supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors. And many of these conversations had a real impact on me. And I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered. And at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. My guest on this episode of the podcast, it's Ruby Wax. She is a writer, comedian, mental health campaigner and author and someone whose interviews have really inspired me over the years so it's really quite something to be interviewing her, to be speaking to her on this show for you, my most excellent listeners. Ruby joins me in this episode to talk about her latest book and now for the good news, the much needed tonic for our frazzled world. If you feel utterly distraught at the constant negative news cycle, whether it's the climate crisis, increasing costs of living, injustice, did I mention COVID-19? And as this episode goes live, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, then you may have stopped searching for the light of hope on the horizon. Because let's face it, it's constant and it can feel like a lot. You may just assume that there's only bad news out there in the world to be shared, and that's why that's all you're seeing. But here's the thing. If all we ever expect is bad news, if we assume that there is only bad news in the world, that chain reaction can really affect us personally, and it can make us feel hopeless, helpless, agitated, and fall into that space where you wake up in the morning and think, what's the point? As someone whose particular shape and shade of depression took this form, a sort of chronic apathy that eventually suffocated everything, I see this bad news cycle as something that can trigger the same feelings, even in the most hopeful of souls. And perhaps Ruby thought this too, which is why she went on a global search to find the good news, to find the good out there, to find the light. Because if you don't know the light is there, you won't know to see it. And so she compiled all her findings into the book so we can see all there is, all the hope that there is out there in the world and to equip us with a positive approach for a brighter world and most importantly, for a better collective mental well-being. And Ruby has been open about her own mental health issues over the years, something that was a source of great comfort to me at a time when I needed it. I thought if Ruby struggles, then kind of okay that I do too. 
So during our conversation, I also quizzed her about how she emerged from her own struggles, the coping mechanisms she put in place, and what she learned from a master's degree in cognitive-based therapy from Oxford University, because Ruby has really done the work. I came away from this conversation feeling really inspired, not least because speaking to Ruby, it was a reminder to always be curious about the world around you rather than scared of it, how vulnerability can immediately neutralise tension, and how, though it might feel hard sometimes, it's important to look for and follow the light, because it is there. I'm so glad to be sharing this conversation with Ruby Wax on the podcast. All the links to Ruby, the book, and everything else we discuss is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this podcast. But without any further ado, chatting about her new book and many other things. And now for the good news, please do join me in welcoming the incredible Ruby Wax onto The Emma Gunn Show. A very warm welcome to The Emma Gunn Show, Ruby Wax. How are you? Hi, Emma. Hi. Well, you know how I am because we were talking before you started talking. I know that was a stage. How are you? Which is which seems very disingenuous. I know, and I'm fine. Thank you, Emma. Thank you. How can I tell you? you can I tell you something? I think of you every single day, and that's not a that's not a joke or a lie. I do something. <laughs> you do because every day when I take my supplements. I am reminded of when you interviewed Goldie Horn and went through her supplements and laughed at her for some of the things that she was taking. And every single day when I'm taking my supplements, especially if I have a new one, I think, would Ruby Wax shave me for this? It depends. I mean, she was like Santa. You know, she had bags of it. But look at her. She looks 10. So I'm not laughing anymore. She does. Yep, she, I mean, she, and that was a while ago as well. She was kind of way ahead on the sort of supplement healthy <laughs> yeah exactly but she was the head on the mindfulness front you know she um put her money where her mouth is so she went from this kind of underrated actress you know who really was a comic you know mm-hmm. I wouldn't say genius but she was brilliant at it and that's mm-hmm. very rare for somebody to be beautiful and funny mm-hmm. only Lumley and Lucille Ball sorry if I've missed anybody but they're not that many and then um she got the big boys you know uh Daniel Siegel and uh, Rick Hansen and all the major kind of um, neuroscience guys who were doing research on mindfulness, she raised the money and they came up with, she didn't, but a lot of people helped her uh, build something called Mind Up. And it's in over 4,000 schools and it teaches kids what I found in my book when I went to look at education, you know, the finest thing you could give a kid so that they don't burn out and they make fantastic human beings, which should now be the stress of where we, where we put our attention as far as educating your kid. I think that was what was so interesting about the book is finding these rays of light. Because if you listen to the news, and maybe this is, I don't know, when somebody writes the book, there's a proposal, there's a hypothesis, there's an idea, like we have to shed light on this. But if you just engage with mainstream media and social media as you find it, you are not going to find rays of light. Well, bad news sells, you know, let's not be naive. And, and we know it always has, except now it's, it's jumped up too much. You know, I think they know that we're so, kind of, sal- they make it salacious so that they show us more and more detail. You know, the news was just the news, but now the camera really goes like into the eyeball and you can see the 
journalists really shoving the mic in and it goes on for too long. And then we have that horror music that you only get in zombie films of here comes another and another disaster and your, your heart races. And that's very addictive, that hit of adrenaline. I think people are so copped on to what human weakness is now and they can make money out of it. So they keep us on a drip feed of disasters. And um, you're completely right. I, I hope people become more aware of when they're kicking into addiction and when they're just looking at the news. So I'm sorry, I'll go into my book and the one called And Now for the Good News, because I wrote a couple. <laughs> so And Now for the Good News was written before the pandemic because I did exactly what you just said. I wanted to get my eye off the button. This is before COVID. You know, the Brexit thing, I thought I was gonna lose my mind. And as soon, luckily, as soon as one disaster goes, whoop, they got another one to replace it. So I thought, I don't want to get ill on this. <laughs> Did I know the pandemic was coming? So I decided wherever you take your focus, like which people are you with? What are you doing at work? That determines who you are. Mm -hmm. So I thought rather than just get into this kind of witch's cauldron with my friends of how horrible the world was, I'd go out and look and see if it really was that bad. So when I went to um, look at education, uh, community, business, tech, um, uh, health. I looked for what I call the green shoots. And I don't mean a little hippie community. I mean, big organizations and big new ways of educating that are, I call them the green shoots. And if we focus on that, that becomes the future. But if we want to keep thinking it's a disaster, it'll be a disaster. So I had the privilege of being around people that were reinventing the wheel. So when and, I went to a school like with Goldie, that was breathtaking. Mm. Sorry, go ahead. Well, that's the thing. It's kind of you can get completely drawn into the doom, doom spiral by engaging with mainstream media. And you could have just thought, I'm just going to surround myself with positive friends. But it was a it was a bigger thing. It was a that's I'm talking about. Yeah. You it's a much that, bigger yeah. shift. It's a no, no there are people out there doing the right things. I'm just not seeing them. I'm going to find them. And hope comes from there and joy, I guess. I think you have to be doing something in order to really have that positivity. If in the gloom, somebody's got a brave face and they sing, walk on through the rain. Um, that's, you know, they're lucky that they don't have a lot of uh, whatever it is, cortisol, or, you know, I have a kind of proclivity toward a darkness, but it's not going to wipe off on me. I mean, maybe for two seconds, you know, people say, does laughter do anything? Yeah. For, you know, for a half an hour, then you go home to your situation. But when you see the people that are changing the world, even in a tiny way, boy, does your heart fill with hope mm -hmm. because I'm seeing the proof of it. For example, we were talking about, I went into schools, a couple of them, they're called reach Two. they're in the UK. And I'm not telling people go look at it. I'm saying, if you read what they're doing, you can take some of those tools and bring it home to your kids. So they were, it was in a disadvantaged neighborhood. All of them are, there's a few reach two schools, really disadvantaged. The kids' scores were below sea level and um, uh, they brought in a new way of teaching kids. So they taught them empathy and they taught them how to have self-respect and they taught them how to um, lower their own stress levels you know, they didn't have to have somebody hold their hand. They had techniques to get it down and how to be authentic. So this little kid, you knew he came from a really disadvantaged background. And um, by the way, they're state schools, so we can't go, oh, it's just for rich people. So he said to me, and he was really shaking. You could see what would happen if he wasn't in this school, what he would grow into. And he said, you know what? You make me really nervous 
So the minute he cleared the air of how he feels, I could say, well, you're making me nervous, meaning it's not your fault. This is what's coming from me. And then he took my hand. I thought I was going to, I had to hold my face like this because I kept almost crying. He took my hand and he took me into his classroom and I got to watch um, how when they feel themselves going into that kind of red panic, they have a little, a little corner that they go to which has red, green, and yellow on the wall. And they know they're in red. And then they have all these tools like breathing balls and things online and whatever to get them. They'll know when they come back to green and then they can do to take their exams. And how the teachers say to me, said to me, there's no such thing as a stupid question or answer. Now, if I had that, I would have succeeded a lot earlier because they say these are the kids that think out of the box. Well, and they, you know, and they play gratitude games. And God, did you watch a potential, you know, the next generation of criminals just soften up and become these really conscientious kids. Like if they upset somebody, they go through a whole checklist of how did this person see the world? What, what did I, you know, what could I do next time? Can I maybe say, oh, I'm sorry. So nobody feels bullied. Because a lot of times you say you imagine that they're the bully and then it feeds into each other. Anyway, mm. it was really tough. Well, I mean, it makes me think about um, my therapy sessions. And I've spoken to <laughs> listeners about this previously, where a lot of the stuff that comes to the surface in therapy sessions is the frustration when you were a kid, how you didn't feel heard, how something happened to you and you never really got a resolution. And that obviously is nipping that in the bud at the source and just saying, well, let's deal with it here and now. But it's teaching the coping mechanisms so you don't need to pay a therapist 30 years oh, later. Oh, no, therapists are going to be out of business with these kids. I mean, everything was, um, you know, everything was getting them ready to have a really open mind so that whatever was happening at home didn't, you know, they have the intelligence. It's just they hear the screams from what's going on on in their homes then the parents are brought in and they're taught to garden and plant their own vegetables and then the kids teach them how to cook healthy food and then the whole neighborhood built the kids a zen den and the parents sit there with the kids and they talk about what's going on and they um they meditate one of the little girls led them in meditation oh it was just unbelievable one of the kids was <clears throat> died and so they had a little tree and they all put notes to the little kid um, you know, it came, the abusive background was too much. And then at the end of the day, they all sang a million miles to me, 600 of them. And then I broke down. I had to be carried out. It wouldn't have. Yeah. I'm not surprised. I didn't make that one. Um, and they're probably that's listeners. In, yeah. And there are probably people listening to this who, who wouldn't even know that that goes on. Wouldn't even know that that's one of the types of schools available and that that model is working and can work on a larger scale. And there's something called dot B, which is Oxford University put it out. It's how to teach kids from about three to five and then five to 16 and 16. There's there are workbooks that they use in this country because they're teaching mindfulness in schools, mm -hmm. but it, they don't really call it mindfulness. But again, they're teaching kids how to lower their heart levels and how to, again, how imagine if they're talking to somebody how does that person see the world what is it like in his eyes and if you can do that you're the master of the universe well funny you should say that because I've just interviewed uh somebody who is was the former head of negotiation for the FBI so dealt with 
kid, like the, the big hostage negotiations, kidnaps, the whole thing, you know, lots of money involved, high stakes. And wow. he, he teaches a form of negotiation that's all about um, emotional intelligence. And one of the main pillars is you don't have to agree with the person. You just have to get to a point where you understand where they're coming from and what their objective is. And they feel it. You know, if you can try to get in somebody's mind, you never will, but they can feel it and they'll open right up. And so you create this, even if somebody's coming on the attack, if you're trying to see how do they see it, that immediately the person's covered in empathy and there's compassion immediately, unless something's wrong with the person. Okay, because some people are psychopaths then at least you're smart enough to go, okay, okay, something's not right here. And then really it doesn't help to start beating them up because they'll kill you. <laughs> so know when to back off. Know when to back yeah. off indeed. And yeah. there's something else about this as well. Uh, there's this whole generation of people who are referred to as snowflakes. And these will be the people who say, I need a personal day because work's too stressful. And for someone like me, and I spoke about this on the podcast recently, I've worked in the media for a long time. I was always told very much on magazines, there are a million girls who'll do your job. So, you know, you don't want to look like you're not committed. And so that meant working when you're not very well mentally and physically and all of the above. And so when I hear my friends who are employing people who are slightly younger saying, they've called in for a personal day for their mental health. I don't know what to do with this. There's a tendency to eye roll and to think they don't have the, the strength and the what have you that we did. And then uh, a few months ago, I interviewed a brilliant psychologist called Dr. Ramani Devazula. And she said, actually, somebody identifying those feelings and expressing to you that they are in a state of distress is really advanced. Like what you did is you buried it all and now you're now you're furrowing all <laughs> with your therapist yeah. or with your friends at a much later date talking about how harrowing that was. They're dealing with it in the here and now. Well, that's what they were teaching this kid at school, you know, to say, this is my state. I feel this, you know, I, I run my frazzled cafes. That's a whole nother story. But the whole point is to say, what's the weather condition going on in your mind? There's going to be always somebody to take advantage. So yeah, again, oh, you decide, look at the negative, look at the positive. I think it's a hundred billion pounds is lost. A hundred billion pounds is lost every year in businesses in this country for people suffering from app, you know, from stress. Mm. Uh, so you decide, do you want to pay attention to those who might need a few days off or do you just want to keep, you know, if it, if it worked, if the old system worked, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Mm. So, I mean, in the, in the book, I also looked in business and I'm not, I don't know how business works because my dad came from the school of kill them before they kill you. You know, that scene in the, in the Godfather where, the guy wakes up with a horse's head. That was my dad used to do that as a greeting card. He was a killer, you know, in business. So I didn't have a really great image of how to do good business, but I did work at Patagonia Sportswear and under Unilever, Dove Soap, and a few companies now, Ben and Jerry's, there's a list of them where um, they put purpose in front of profit. But again, like that school, they're making 10 times more than any other business. It says that in the Harvard Business Review. But um, everybody needs meaning and that's, and that's really healthy. Mm -hmm. So for example, at Patagonia Sportswear, and you could do this again in your business, maybe you have, you have, a, you have a mission. So in, and it came out of 
it came out of the need of somebody, let's say a dove. She had body dysmorphia. Her father kept telling her how fat he was. Now she gets to the head of the company and she makes it her mission. And everybody agrees. They go into schools and they deal with girls with different body shapes and give them, you know, give them the works that how beautiful they are and not to, you know, get confused that it has anything to do with their heart or their personality. So of course the dove so uh, post, you know, poster is women of every shape and they're all gorgeous. And then, you know, different companies, which I list in there have different missions and it makes everybody really work together and have purpose outside of doing their little widgets. What is that? You know, working in a factory and just all business can be really mundane, mm-hmm. you know, cause you, but when you have something bigger than yourself, boy, do they lock in together and it's called conscious capitalism is the name of the book that every that that inspired everybody it and it's, it's so hopeful what, really hopeful and you think you know millennials are, they have apps already they can smell out if your blue jeans were sewn together by some grandmother in vietnam you're going to get busted so it's better for these companies to get wise because people are going to see through them mm-hmm. in a minute uh, it, it doesn't take a lot. So they're cleaning. Some of them are really cleaning. And again, people roll their eyes and go, well, that's business. That's their way of making money. Yeah, there's some people greenwashing where, you know, they're just putting on a front. But we're going to know who they are in a minute. Yeah. 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 When I get a press release for a new product and they're like, green packaging, sustainable packaging, you know, you've changed the nozzle. Oh, yeah. You've changed one element of it. So No organic eco walk away right these guys are doing really great marketing it's still made out of whale blubber no matter (laughs) even if the whale was a vegan walk away (laughs) (laughs) i mean say there's something a stamp now called b Corps, and i went to go see them in new york and it's an organization that if you want to join and now it's really prestigious to join Mm. uh they have to look at everything like your supply chain. They have to look at how do you deal with um, paying everybody in your business? What do the customers feel? And they check it every year and if and they give you the stamp if you're clean. And so people now go, hey, I'm in B Corps and it's cool. When I was reading the book, I think, and listeners will know if they've been listening for a while, I've talked at length about my uh, issues with mental health. And I think what really stood out for me, Ruby, was um, uh, there was a point where everything for me looked bleak and that was all I could see. And uh, I I always quote this, RuPaul says that everyone has an internal saboteur and it tries to get you alone to kill you. And I definitely was in the, the grip of my internal saboteur. And what I enjoyed most about this was saying it's literally just putting in front of people, not just one thing, not two things, but a whole raft of things to say, it might feel bleak, but look, look, just look over here. You're being forced to look over there. Like because of what's going on in your head, you're only seeing the darkness, but honestly, trust me, just there is light. Was Mm. there a symmetry between your own issues with your mental health and writing the book and trying to force more light into the world. You know, I probably, you know, as you do, our work is an expression of our problems, <laughs> you know? So if I want to run away from something, luckily I write a book about it, or I wanted to learn how does my brain work because it feels so crazy. And, you know, is there a devil inside me? So I get to write a book on neuroscience. Luckily I get paid for what I'm interested in. So with this, um, 
if I really had depression, everything gets negated. You know that you can win an Oscar and you want to kill yourself. And there are people who have. So it has nothing to do. But before we go into the full, you know, downward rush into uh, hell, Mm -hmm. if you can keep your uh, eye on the ball on something that feeds your heart, you have more chance of it not getting so deep. So yeah, during the whole time I researched this book, I didn't go into the darkness. I still have a mental illness and I could have, but I just kept it going. It was like getting antidepressants, but in the form of people, you know, and then I'd live in communities, which they let me live in during lockdown, um, where there's a real common thrust. There's there's about 10,000, they're called eco, what are the, gen, oh, global eco networks. And they have, again, a common cause. There's always a community center where you can eat dinner twice a week. There's big fields where you do your vegetables. I don't know how to plant, but, you know, they do that. And then if anything breaks down for anyone, they have a kind of website. You run to that person and help them. And um, they're, again, community centers. So young mothers can have older people watching their babies. And one is in the middle of London. Again, it's, it's free housing. I'm not saying, you know, go, this is how we're going to live, but take some of the ideas. It's in South London. It's called Bedzed. And um, in the middle of South London, suddenly, and I'm talking about it's, uh, what is it? Peabody Trust. So you don't have to have money. Um, But some of, suddenly the buildings are facing each other. They know how to face the sun to, you know, to make use of the weather. And then the, the gardens are on top of the building and all the buildings are facing each other, right? And there's cobblestone streets between them so the parents can watch the kids. And there's a community center where they have Zumba and they have whatever, and they invite the rest of South London to come in. But it's it's unbelievable to watch. And now they're creating parks where um, they make it so that the journey is just as interesting as the destination. So if you visit these places, you go, <gasps> And I've even bought a little um, a piece of eco village in Northern Scotland because I like that. I like that everybody knows everybody. It doesn't bother me at all. They, you know, they don't intrude on your life, but I like the idea. And my neighbor's the guy who invented solar paneling. Well, who doesn't want to meet these guys? And part of this book was, I'm so sick of people talking about things at dinner parties. You know, here's what I think of the environment. Here's what, you know, here's what's going on in the refugee camps. I say, get off the pot or shut up. So my next book, I am working in refugee camps. Shut up, just do something. And if you can't, because you're really old or you're disabled, hopefully somebody else next door has what I'm talking about and their pleasure will be feeding, you know, getting you whatever you need. And yeah. that's that's teamwork. And every single chapter from education to um, tech to whatever, it's all about working as a community now. That's the next theme. You are so right. There is so much almost... Uh fetishizing of sitting down with people and talking about what you would do or how people are doing it wrong but there's very little action I mean I I want to say next time people are experts on so and so like I I didn't know about the refugee situation because I'm writing my next book which is about this one was about finding physically where things were going on which you can you know, steal some of the ideas or actually go there and look at it. So the next one is looking for meaning. So I'm offering a menu of things that don't cost a lot. Let's not, you know, go to a spa if you've got the money. I'm not stopping you, but working, you know, shut up about the refugees, go look at it. 
Go meet one person. If everybody met one person who's a refugee, we wouldn't be in this situation. And your job was to help them. Mm. It's not like um, I'm a good person. I'm not. I know nothing. But I really think, go look. <laughs> I'm a really selfish person. And the reason I'm doing this book is every time I do something really selfish and egotistical, I'm doing a bartering system. So I go do something nice. You atone with a new book. <laughs> I atone with a new book. Yeah. If there is a God, they'll go, oh, well, she wrote a nice book. Yeah. And she shared all of that. So, I mean, you know, where it cost, yeah. um, it sounds as though writing the book and what you, where you went and what you did in order to research it and live it and do it was really profound, but was there a, was there a moment or a piece of information or something that really hit you hard and was almost like, I now will never see the world in the same light again, because that is such a magnificent piece of insight. I think it was at the very end. I, the last chapter is called World Savers. So I picked three charities and that weren't about singing and dancing and dragging a celebrity up by the hair and serving caviar, not mentioning any names. But um, I went to go see what Choose Love were doing. And they're these angels, these young girls, and they're on the ground. There's no, um, they're the ones who get the guys to build the women's center. They're, they're all young. There's another guy who, when they get, the money he gets the sewers build he's the fixer so you see everything working and so I had the privilege of going there and um meeting the real deal and meeting the these girls for English girls who I still think should be knighted who are there and saying what do you need what do you need and building it themselves there's a little uh, you know schools for the kids they bring in people to teach those kids you know how to code then there was a woman's center that was unbelievable where <laughs> I had nothing to give these women, but you get to hear them and they're, and they're beautiful. And they tell you these horrific stories, not in a whiny way, the way we do, but, you know, saying um, I was standing next to my husband and the police came to get some, he, he videoed a riot and they said, we want the tapes. And he said, I don't have them. And they shot him uh, while she was holding the baby and she's called princess and she's got they get like a cup of water a week. And yet she made her hair really beautiful. Another woman, I mean, the stories, they walked from Somalia, they took away their babies, they don't know where they are. Another woman, the Taliban took her son, they tortured him and they brought him back and now he's in the camp screaming, but there's no psychiatrist. So what did I do? I didn't know what to do. I know this sounds terrible. I took them to get a manicure. <laughs> I didn't know what else to do. And I'm in a resort. Part of Samos is a resort. So they all went and they became what they are. These women like talking about the excitement of which color they're going to have. And at the end, just for a minute, they were at home. You know, you saw them as the women they were. And I have pictures of them holding up their nails. Well, you could die. So I got to smell it and see it. And I know those women. Uh, so that's a world changer, that they're people they can do that. See, for me, I think you hearing about those awful situations about the woman whose husband was shot next to her and about the kid who was tortured. That even that information having real estate in my brain, it has the potential to be able to haunt me. Um, how I'm is sorry. it? No, no, no. See, that, no that's no. bad news. I shouldn't carry that. I didn't no. give it to you, but the good news is there's people taking care. 
No, but I just, I mean, in, in my life, if something happens and I think of it as bad or I, I will allow it to haunt me, even if I'm trying really, really hard to push towards the light, knowing that that exists. And then when I was reading the book, I was thinking about the Gene McCartney and is it Hubert Humphrey, where the microphones were turned off at the, uh, was it the Electoral College? Yeah, during the Chicago Democratic Convention and the Americans were voting and I was there at age 16. And so they turned the microphones off of all the um, states voting for who they wanted as president and you couldn't hear them. And so I thought, bye-bye American pie. And I left for the UK. I watched what happened in there and it was fixed. It was rigged. That would, when I read that, I thought the, the ramifications of that I don't know, you tell me, but uh, to know that the fundamental system that's in charge is crooked and to have seen it with your own eyes, I, I, that, I don't know, that could have, sent, could have sent me mad knowing that, knowing that there's, it doesn't, doesn't matter how much you rebel, doesn't matter how much you campaign, doesn't matter how much you do, it is, it's not going to be a straight, fair race. I, I only happened to see that. Uh, did we make it? It's the Chicago Democratic Convention. It was in 1960, 70-something. And I was a baby, and I got in there. Um, and then I did see the police raid the hotel we were in and club everybody over the head. It was an unusual time. They made a <laughs> film about it. And so I lost my uh, mojo about, um, um, you know, having hope at that time for America to clean up its act. So I thought, let's pack up and get out of town. It, it, well, look what's happened since then. What can I say? And uh, I, I don't, I don't, it's not my area. It's like if I was in politics now, it would make me sick. So I move, you know, I'm not in politics. It would make me ill. Even to listen to it makes me ill. So I think it's the little guy that's going to change the world, you know, a ripple effect. And I guess that's in the book. You see the one person with the idea and then 10 and then 100 and then 1,000. And then suddenly it's Unilever. And suddenly, um, I think there was a, oh God, what is it in the book? There's a really huge company that are remodeling under one of the poorest places in the UK. I'll have to look it up. I feel so bad. Some water company. And they build schools, they're educating the people, they're giving them jobs, they've built them a community center. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. These people didn't even speak English as a first language. I'll have to look it up. It's in the book. Uh, and it's a big, it's like Avion. It's a big company. And and so you see the ones doing the positive stuff. I don't want to see. Why mm-hmm. should I get involved with somebody who's crooked and whatever? It'll just make me sick. Mm-hmm. So I keep your eye on the button. I mean, we have to know certain things. Otherwise, we're living in ignorance. But how much can you take? I'm, I'm, I'm too thin-skinned to be able to watch the death figures of COVID or how many people are getting it. I can't take it. It makes me sick. I know enough, 
but I don't have to watch it every hour. That's a really interesting and key point. It's like, what can you take? And I guess everyone has to do that own inventory of how much can they tolerate and, and when do they need to leave the room, whether it's literally or figuratively or metaphorically. Well, that's the same we were talking about. When is a friend sucking your energy? You don't have to leave the room immediately, but you get it. This is really bad for my health. But that's a fine line because it's your job too to do what we were saying, have some insight and say, wait a minute, does she just remind me of somebody who tortured me in high school? Or do you know what I mean? Because we project onto people who they remind us of. Get out of my head, Ruby, get out of my head. (laughs) Get out of my head. Like you look really pretty and you could be the popular girl. I could see me really starting to get snappy with you. But then I go, she's not Linda Schwartz, who you look like. And she was a beauty. I go, this is, you know, this is you. So I relate to you like that. Do you know what I mean? If somebody looks similar, sometimes you project everything onto them. 100%. Same thing with the news. I have to hear some of it. I, but there's a moment where you go, bingo, this is past, this is now making me sick. Forgive myself. There's a moment where you forgive yourself and go, I got to leave the building now. Yeah. Um, I will show you at the end of this, a picture of me when I was in school and you will not feel the way that you felt. Okay. <laughs> Trust me. I'll show a picture of me. And I look like one of those, those, um, what are those, like they're hogs, but their, their teeth curl up. Warthogs. Uh, what? Yeah. <laughs> immediately went I'm to the lion king not actual not a natural animal before they were popular <laughs> um you went into you actually started to study psychology at is it university of california berkeley is it berkeley, oh, or berkeley? yeah Bar- berkeley and then uh it was acting but then you did go back didn't you and you did a, a master's in was it mind- mindfulness-based? It's hard to see. mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Yeah. Was there? Were you drawn towards that, or was that like was that a life raft, or was that because I kind of have done my own journey, and I've done it myself did without? You, did you go into psychology? Did you study it? Were you curious? You didn't have to. I'm just asking. No, no. But when I realized what I, when I started therapy and understood patterns and all of these things, that was when I got a real hunger to interview people on this podcast who Mm. are psychologists, who are psychiatrists, who can kind of explain, I don't know if you've read Nicola Perra's book, How to Do the Work, but that's just really interesting to understand that sometimes you can be locked in a way of thinking and you believe it to be real. And you don't understand that that was a protective mechanism from 20, 30 years ago that did protect you at some point, was good for you at some point, but now hurts you deeply. And so you Mm. have to develop a new pattern. And that even something like that is just so comforting and freeing if you are caught in that very bleak headspace. Well, you just summed it up. That's what therapy is. It makes you quit, especially CBT is saying... Am I caught in a habit of thinking? Is this a a dog chasing its tail and there's no solution? I'm just caught in a fulcrum of old patterns. Boy, does that take wisdom. And people think, oh, do you just go on a weekend workshop? And you think, you know, however long it took you to get a stomach muscle, a six pack, that's how long it's going to take you to reshape your brain. And if you stop doing it, it'll go back to what it was. 
but you really yeah. have to want to. So whatever you just said is what therapy is about. Successful therapy. <laughs> Um, when you, because I read previously that you said that you, you are a high profile figure. People know who you are and you did something that I remember think reading at the time thinking, oh, I absolutely couldn't do that because it would unlock all of the bad feelings. You went back and looked at old interviews and oh yeah, how, so you must've known you could do that because I don't know about you, but project me projecting now when I go back and listen to anything old I don't think oh that was a good question I think oh why did you pause for so long or why didn't you ask that then or that was a missed opportunity uh I never I never looked at any of them because I don't I I just hear my voice and I could faint I don't even listen to anything I've ever said and luckily I don't hear myself except my kids imitate me. So I have a clue of how horrible this sounds. <laughs> but then, then because of Louis Theroux, who's a really nice man, he interviewed me, which really, that was the bravest thing I've ever done because I assumed he was my enemy. Again, I projected onto him. He was a man that took my job away. It's the reason my kids almost starved. It's why I completely lost 25 years of working. It was now why I had to reinvent myself. I built it all on one guy. Turns out it's not him at all. I couldn't even say his name. I wouldn't allow my children to say it. And now he wanted to interview me. I knew it was coming for six months. <laughs> and I used it as a kind of, what is that? Your um, nemesis. You meet your mm-hmm. nemesis. I thought, oh, there'll be growth out of this. It's like bullfighting. And now you haven't got a red cape. So it was coming closer and closer. <laughs> I happened to be in one of these eco communities it was during the pandemic and I was living over a healing center. I don't really buy into healing, but there were four of them and they worked on me the night before. And then while Louie was interviewing me, they, one of them was just kind of gently touching my neck and another one had my hand while he's interviewing me. (laughs) So whenever I'd start to get scared, I'd look over and they'd soften me. So I could do this interview with no fear, no anger, just to say, here's what, like we were saying, here's what was going on for me. I'm, apologize I've never seen your shows um this is what you were to me he wasn't expecting that and then he said you should do all your old shows I said believe me this is not an audition (laughs) I moved on and then because he was so you know kind uh, suddenly the BBC said okay let her do her old shows now I don't know it may be coincidental but that's what Louis did what a guy and I wrote him an email saying no one in television has ever been as gracious you know as giving as you have so suddenly I, I had to come back and watch myself. Here's your horror show. Eight hours a day for eight days. You're watching your old tapes. It took eight days, eight hours a day. Okay. If my rectum didn't get so <laughs> shut after that experience, <laughs> nothing will. Is that a horror show? Yeah. My shoulders had to be, you know, grafted. They had to be like with a buzzsaw down from my ears. It was so horrifying. Well, what you were just describing about the healers and speaking to Louis, it, it, there was a lot of compassion. It seems as though he had compassion for you, you had compassion for him. Instead of coming from a place of negativity or uh, you're my nemesis, it, you came from a place of yeah. compassion. You were vulnerable enough to be honest about what you were doing. And well, I knew it was nuts. You know, it wasn't the guy's fault. I was just very jealous. Yeah. Because he's on everything. And so I would, and I kept thinking, oh, 
but at least I was funnier than him. And so I built up this whole thing. Actually, I saw a show that morning and he's really good. <laughs> yeah. It sounds as though you found compassion for yourself though, when you were going back through those videos. Um, or did you have compassion for the Ruby of... I didn't really connect with the person I was watching. I really was watching how attractive I looked in certain shots <laughs> and whether the makeup was too much. <laughs> You'd do it too. With, yeah. Like with too much stuff on my eyelids. Uh, what kind of an angle was that? Because, you know, I'm a narcissist. And then I could hear some devastatingly bad interviews. You know, devastating. Um, but people, bad interviews even work on TV. You know, Donald Trump is the worst interview I've ever done. People go, it's so great. It isn't great. It's disgusting. But it gets a lot of viewing figures. But then there were really good interviews, like with Imelda Marcos or O.J. Simpson. Those were good. I was good on those. So there were more uh, bad ones than good. But (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're all learning experiences. Is it true that before it came to an end, you actually had Saddam Hussein lined up? Or is that? An urban myth. No, not Saddam Hussein. No, I had them. Yasser Arafat, John Simpson had him lined up and uh, Gaddafi. And the BBC said, no, you have to do game shows. What a woman who was the, yeah. That's when I kind of walked away too, to be honest. I really didn't get, I wasn't fired. It's like, I thought, "Uh uh-uh, I can't do game shows. I I wish I could. I would have made a fortune. I can't. (laughs) Because you said earlier, and I could definitely relate to this, that when you're going through something, it reflects in your work. You bring it into your work. What was what was the intention, do you think, by wanting to speak to those sorts of people who are not necessarily, you know, the mainstream primetime interviewee? That yeah, you but expect? I wanted, I always wanted that. You know, before I did celebrities, it was the most interesting people on earth. You know, it was the Ku Klux Klan. It was, um, you know, it was dark stuff. It was uh, snake handlers in, Ap- in Appalachia, you know, who would, during church services, throw these cobras at each other to show how much um, God loved them because they misinterpreted something in the Bible about being able to take the serpent's bite, right? These are hillbillies. They, they took it literally. And so some people were missing their fingers. And another woman was, I was in her, in her caravan and she, you could hear it, the rattler, she was keeping on the bed and she showed me a film of her husband, he was bit. And then I, and they were dancing around and she said, I lost a lot of weight since then. And then I gradually dawned on my, we were watching her husband die because God didn't love him enough. On the video, it dawned on me as they danced around that he was dying. But she said, I lost a lot of weight since then. Now that's a great fucking, Excuse me. That's a great documentary. <laughs> I mean, that was, I'm not saying, well, it was a great documentary. Th- that was meat. You know, that was interesting for me to see that part of America. And then they said, why don't you do celebrities? And mm-hmm. there was a whole other layer. Well, that, what do you think was more interesting? For oh, me? I have. And then let me go back because Louis was doing it. So I hated Louis for it. But on the other hand, I had to thank him. If he hadn't taken that job, I wouldn't have gotten an OBE or gone to Oxford. So I did say thank you. Mm. How uh, transformational was going to Oxford? Was it? Yeah, that was pretty transformational. That was the ugly duckling and the um, 
ugly duckling with no IQ suddenly turning into the swan. <laughs> well, it's good that you can say that. It's good that you can say that and you're not, because that sounds like imposter phenomenon to me. Yeah, I still feel it, yeah. I had Frances Edmonds on the podcast a little while ago. I don't know if you know Frances, but she talked about how she packed up her life and went to Stanford Business School to do this incredible year-long course. And she was in her 60s and she sat there one day and there was a, someone else on the row and it was all going way over her head. So she left. And as she left, the guy next to her who was in his 20s with you know the latest computer left too. And he said to her in the uh, corridor, yeah, it's just so basic, right? But she had just assumed that it was... Oh, my God. And he, he had assumed that she was thought, oh, this is so below me. But she was... <gasps> perception so interesting. And did she go back? Oh, yeah, absolutely. She went back, but it was, I think it was just that course. But it's interesting, isn't it? She went in there thinking, I'm older than the rest of them. I'm yeah. not going to be up to this. And every, but their perception was, you must know way more than we do. So I wonder if oh, wow. you got to know That's yourself so by the, um, so it's good. I'll send you the link to the book. I'm sending you lots of links after definitely. this. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, but I just wonder if it helped you get a sense of who you were a bit more because any kind of challenge does, right? And doing a degree at Oxford, a master's at Oxford is a challenge. Um, well, I think it's time go, I knew I wasn't a loser. Uh, and had I stayed in TV at a certain age, it would, uh, it would take, it would remove you because you're not allowed to be 50 on television because it's a disgrace and viewers really- Unless you're a man. Um, oh, then you could look like an old elephant scrotum at the end. <laughs> um, but as a woman, you got to go. So it would have happened anyway, except now you wouldn't. I couldn't have done that program where you look at your old shows because I go, sad old woman. What happened to her? So I could say, well, I'm not that person anymore. I got this other side. You know, it, the brain is a muscle. You can really, you know, you're not going to be, uh, you know, in the Olympics, but if you do the same exercises with your brain, which means you really focus on something, it will go in. Unless you have something wrong with your brain, you can develop that muscle. I never would have done that if I stayed in TV, the muscle for, oh my God, I'm losing it. Does anybody love me? Oh, I'll go do this show, even though I hate it. Those muscles would have been developed. I mean, that's again, back to the book. Where do you focus? You can focus on people who inspire you. And my professor, Mark Williams, he and he created mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. He that was he did that. So I had the real um, horse. I got it from the horse's mouth. What are you looking at? Oh, I'm you got really it. unprofessional. That's Mark Williams. Yeah, listeners, I, mean, I just had to lean back and get um, Mark's book, which is on of top of my pile behind me. Because you, you haven't made your green shelf yet. I noticed you've got your red. You've got your blue. Mark is turquoise. Well, there's another set of shelves that you can't see. Ruby spotted right. my color-coded bookshelf. So um, the spectrum, don't worry. The rainbow is- My book, A New World, would be also turquoise. You would go in the white with colorful right. writing. Okay. It's a, it's a very uh, specific thing. I know uh, that as soon as we get off, that bookshelf is going to be color-coded. <laughs> yours. You have I'm to- 
Like, you okay, have to. I got something to do. I don't have enough to do. <laughs> I did it. Truth be told, in the first week of lockdown, and this bookcase used to be in another room, I thought, oh, I'll just take the books off and put it in color coded. Got up a load of images on Instagram. It's books make a lot of mess. That's all I'm going to say. When I took them all off and they were all on the floor, it, it doesn't. You think it's going to be easy, but it's actually, but it's brilliant. No, and I've actually, I do them in height. Oh, try it in height. You'll never find what you're looking for, but <laughs> it's an interesting slant. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's. I mean, mindfulness is really interesting because I. Funnily enough, I do a, doing a series in 2022 called 12 Habits. So in 2018, I did one called 26 Habits. Every two weeks, I'd either make or break a habit because we know these things are either good or bad for us, but we either can't do them or we keep doing them when we don't want to. And this year, the 12 Habits allows me to linger a little longer in each habit. And I begin medita- a meditation course today, which I'm really excited. Oh Who's teaching it? Gillian Lavender at the uh, London Meditation Centre. So it's Vedic. I think I'm talking about. I think I know you. Are you doing the eight-week course? No, it's four days. I don't know as if there is an eight-week one, but I I would be up for well, it. Mark Mark does the eight-week one. Oh, but, you know whatever mindfulness is mindfulness. As long as you carry it on, uh, yes. You know you can't do the course and drop it. Yeah, <laughs> because I don't know. I'm again projecting onto you. I have uh, in my own social anxiety and social discomfort before. I have always been the person who walks into a room and if I can make somebody laugh, then I will relax. And I've got, I know that I've got to practice to stop doing that because actually that doesn't, it stops me paying attention to what I really need to pay attention to. And actually being a little bit more, not withdrawn, but withheld. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel, and so what I'm trying to get at here is I feel like for a lot of time I've been projecting to make, to, to making other people feel comfortable makes me feel comfortable. And I'm trying, or what I've done with therapy and what have you is try to sort of circuit break that. So Mm. if I'm comfortable, then hopefully the people around me will be comfortable rather than making them the priority. Was that something that you had or have ever experienced? Oh, well, my job was to tap dance, you know, and make everybody laugh. Yeah. Um, But again, it's a really fine line. Uh, When do you need to, you know, if I go for a job or I got to get an instant like, because I'm not very, I'm not that, I'm not attractive. I have to use my mouth. So um, I had to get in there and, and, and make people laugh. If I don't need the job and I'm just looking at potential like friendships and I find them interesting, I lay way back. Because people got scared when you're too funny. And well, I mean, blissfully, I was never that funny. And so that's fine. Um, but to. But, you know, when people make you happy and you love them, the funniness just ooze. I become hysterical. But if I'm faking it, maybe they can't tell, but it's it's not that good. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't yeah. come from the heart. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Okay. I want to talk about the different aspects in this book because you cover green shoot as well, community business, education, technology, food, and well savers, world savers, well savers. And I wondered how you came to realize that those were the pillars that you needed to investigate, because I don't know as if they would be, uh, 
necessarily obvious to somebody who who hadn't done some of the work that you'd already done. So what was the starting point? Well, what's going to change the world? Basically, I left politics out of it because I don't it's I don't get it. I wouldn't know where to start. But I know that everybody it's areas where you roll your eyes. So saying, oh, my kids, you know, they're going to their brains are burning. How do you get them off the computer? So I go I went to Finland. I'm not telling people to go to Finland, but that's the mother load. You know, that's where I met the minister of education who said, you know, we don't need Nobel Prize winners here. and We don't need heads of uh, hedge funds. We just want people to feel safe. And then I go to the schools and I watch, they don't even have the classroom in rows. They sit them in circles, um, one bigger one and then a smaller one. And they listen to the kids discuss a topic. They turn to the other, the kid behind them and they discuss how they discussed it. So were you listening? Did you understand? I thought you were taking, what you and I are saying, are you taking over the conversation? Were you trying to be funny? You know, just they get, a, they get feedback as to how did they convey this information? And how, you know, they're not giving them criticism, but they're learning about themselves as they learn about the topic and how to capture a kid's attention rather than ramming his face into a topic that by the time he's 30, that won't even exist anymore. So there's there's where they can really invent. And you may roll your eyes and go, well, it's Finland, but they've taken this and they've put it in the UK. And now they look at the test results and it's, you know, this that school I was talking about from, uh, you know, I can't, it doesn't even go that low in the, um, in the standard, whatever the exams are called. And now it's, they're showing off. You know, you, you can, if you, a baby is born curious, it's, they're like Sherlock Holmes and they grab for information. It's only that we smother it or kill it, that by the time they go to school, they've lost their curiosity. So that's interesting. Business is, the business runs the world because they're bigger than politics. They have more money. It's not jobs worth, they don't have to make everybody like them in America for the next four years. So they're the masters of, you know, their corporations run it. So that's why I went into the big firms and saw where this, these seats, they're called Firms of Endearment is another book. First I met the authors and then I went to the, the, the companies, the organizations they were talking about. And Paul Pullman is working in the UN now. He was head of Unilever. That's, that guy is um, an inspiration, but he ran business and now he's kind of running the world. So to see the, the, the CEOs with compassion who really let listen to everyone, but don't control it top down. They let the, the teamwork happen. They trust them enough because those teams know more about the business than he does in a way. But it still works. They still make a lot of money. You know, if they all went down the hole, they go, well, there's an experiment that didn't work. Tech, everybody rolls their eyes and goes, oh, my God, you know, they're sucking my kids' brains dead, you know, brains dry. So I went to find where um, there is in the world of gaming, there's companies, which I mentioned in the book, where the kids still, they have this aggression. They still can kill the bad guy, but they get more points if they figure out if the bad guy maybe got a divorce last week or he forgot where his car keys are. So if they have, if they can get into the mind of the uh, antagonist they, and they, they start to, you know, get that skill. There's another one that Richard Davidson, who was like the great neuroscientist, who was the first to um, put uh, monks into brain scanners and see how their brains change. He created a game where um, there's, there's a rocket and it crashes on a foreign planet. 
and there's aliens there. So they have to read the facial, facial expressions of the aliens and they start to communicate and you watch them bonding with them by reflecting what they look like. Now that's teaching a kid empathy. And there's a few more that are really interesting. Now you people still go, well, that's not the way the world is not, you know, okay, you wanna focus on that? Watch what happens to your kid. But if you can sneak in those games eventually and, um, you know, start to people saying, well, how do I teach my kid? Well, you better walk the talk. You can't shout at them and say, do something I can't do. Mm-hmm. So it's a new way of educating your own kid. And then tech, uh, that's tech. Community is how we live. And we live in isolation. You know, the only time we connected was during uh, during lockdown where everybody came out with the pots and pans. So now I'm looking for who's creating these futuristic cities and communities. This isn't a hippie thing anymore. Now it's Singapore, how they're building buildings that, you know, first of all, nature grows around it. Again, not the most expensive. So there's a forest around you and there's parks where people meet. So I looked at that and then food, you know, how, how we deal with what we put in our mouths and the future of what's out that's already out there that could save the planet. But because of lobbyists, we're not getting to it. Again, my job isn't to fight them. I'm just pointing it out that here's some ideas of what you can do with mycelia or, you know, seaweed or whatever. They already know this, but we're just not getting to it. But I'm not doing the fight. I'm just pointing it out. Um, we at this point is like has has everybody seen Don't Look Up? <laughs> and those and oh, I haven't seen it, but I've heard it. Yeah. Oh, you will you will dry laugh a lot uh, with some of the <laughs> very subtle things. You'll be like, there'll be just a choky laugh. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention actually about education because I read your book at the same time as I read Johan Hari's Stolen Focus, and he talks about the way in which we think that education should look eight hours at a desk, study, 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 and how actually the brain doesn't work like that. And so to then read what you'd written about education and how you can uh, completely change the experience and make it much richer and much to serve somebody's life a lot better was so helpful. And I think what the book does is, as you say, it points out that it isn't all doom and gloom. And that's why I think everybody should read it. I think, is it Kathy? Is it Let? Let? It's Kathy Let, isn't it? She says it's the antidote to all COVID angst. And I thought that was perfect because I think if you've got into that doom spiral, you would think there it's just bad news everywhere. And what this does and what I think you've illustrated so well here is that there is actually good news everywhere. You've pointed it out. You can run towards it. But even just knowing that it's there is so comforting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then next time I'll tell you where the meaning is <laughs> once I find it. Do. So are you on another sort of world tour of finding meaning? Yeah. I mean, I'm uh, Richard Cole is taking me into a monastery. I'm doing a silent month retreat. I'm um, going to save whales, literally, with people who save whales. You know, taste, I've, I work in refugee camps a lot in Athens. And then... Um, there's, you know, doing the pilgrimages. I might not find it, but at least I'm trying. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's a it's a brilliant uh, venture on which to go. Um, I really appreciate your time, Ruby. It's been so lovely to oh, chat to you. Oh, thank you. It was really fun. <laughs> and I'm and just you going. Really are attractive, and I like you, which is so unusual. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the bookcase that you like. Let's not. That's that's one you over. Office. 
Yeah, I'm flipping around. Okay. <laughs> that won you over. We're going to do a fake goodbye now, uh, but stay on the line. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Listeners, the links to the, pod, the book, everything that Ruby has talked about, because you've mentioned quite a few things, the links will be in the show notes. But Ruby, Wax, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate your time hugely. If you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode, then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. You have to answer a couple of questions, but we cannot wait to see you there. Come over and join the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one. Bye.